Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 16th of November. In this COVID update, Associate Professor Paul Griffin will explain the reasons for the increased vulnerability of severe COVID infection in older people and describe the management strategies both in the community and in facilities that can be helpful in mitigating the risk. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. Hi, Paul Griffin's my name, and I'm here today to give you an update on COVID-19 with a particular focus on the elderly and the added risk that COVID poses in that group. Here's some relevant disclosures, but today the content is all my own. Here's the basic outline, but I'll get right into it. I think most people are aware of some of the basic statistics. First discovered in December 2019, pandemic declared March 2020, but more recently we've had a winding back of some of these declarations. The Public Health Emergency of International Concern terminated on the 5th of May 2023. Importantly though, this was in the context of saying that COVID is ongoing and established. Certainly didn't mean that it had gone away. And recently we've had similar messaging here in Australia, the AHPPC declaring the emergency response over. And you can see the number of cases and deaths we've had worldwide. And in Australia, nearly 12 million cases and deaths over 22,000. And on the right, you can see this cartoon shows pandemics over time with COVID currently sitting seventh. Hopefully we won't see that climb up that list anytime soon. Just to quickly show the trend of cases and deaths globally, you can see the death rate relative to case rate was quite high early, kind of then became a bit matched. And fortunately, recently both have declined. And if we look at Australia and the entire pandemic, clearly we had an event that occurred. um, And really this was the emergence of Omicron. And this was coincident with actually a removal of a lot of restrictions. So what happened before and after has been quite markedly different. And if we look a little bit more detail at the case rate uh, with Omicron, you can see while we've had a number of different waves of transmission, fortunately the numbers have remained quite low recently. And if we look at how we compare globally new cases, you can see here we're not really picking up too many anywhere, although there may be some countries with an increasing trend that might change this soon. If we look at cumulative cases, Australia actually shaded quite darkly, I think largely representing we were quite good at finding cases particularly early. And if we look at deaths, these graphs not quite so clean because the numbers are, are a bit lower and there's been some lags in terms of how these have been reported. But if we compare cases and deaths, again, when we did see Omicron take off, despite some commentary, it might be mild. The death rate went up accordingly, but fortunately both have declined in recent times. And here, I think this picture tells a a number of really important uh, stories. If we look at our cumulative death rate, you can see it's actually quite low. So while many have had uh, things to criticise about our strategy, I think uh, trying to keep the, the numbers of this virus fairly low until we had high rates of vaccination and other really important uh, tools like antivirals has certainly made a difference. So all in all, I think Australia has fared fairly well. Now, virology is fairly complicated. I'll go through this fairly quickly, really just to highlight how challenging this situation is. We had a number of variants over time, initially named after where they were found and subsequently after the Greek alphabet. We then had Omicron and it's 
large number of subvariants, and that's become even more complicated again just to show how complex this really is. So now there's over 600 Omicron subvariants. You can see the waves that we've had uh, driven by the subvariants that are, that are listed there, but that's not really the end of the story. We've had new subvariants recently EG5, EG5.1, and then BA2.86. You can see they come up with these silly nicknames. Uh, I don't really know where they get those from, but the concerning feature about BA2.86 is it's perhaps the most different subvariant we've seen really all the way back to when Omicron emerged. Still relatively small in number, but one we're watching really carefully. Importantly, it looks like our newest boosters, our XBB boosters, will still likely provide good protection even against some of these subvariants, but more work needs to be done to confirm that. And basically the implications here is that the virus is continuing to change and, and change at quite a, quite a fast rate. So some of our interventions that are dependent on, on viral strain or, or subtype uh, will have to be updated accordingly. And of course, this refers to both vaccination and monoclonal antibodies. So we do need complementary strategies. Uh, we can't rely on any one of those strategies alone. So looking at the elderly now, it's really clear that age is a risk factor. This is Australian Bureau of Statistics data where you can see the death numbers go up very significantly in the older age groups. And if you look at the age specific death rates, so deaths per 100,000 of the estimated resident population, those two columns on the right, you can see those rates are extraordinarily high uh, in the elderly compared to younger individuals. And here's some early data uh, out of China with over 100,000 cases. You can see the death rate was extraordinarily high in the elderly compared to younger age groups. And why this might be, it's a complicated situation, of course. We know the virus binds to the ACE2 receptor in the upper respiratory tract, endocytosed, replicates, travels to other respiratory cells and infects them. In a youthful system, so in younger people, our um, immune system in those areas, alveolar macrophages, dendritic cells, our antigen-presenting cells, recognise the virus, help to present it and amplify an immune response that does a pretty good job of controlling it. Cytokines are released, antigens presented and the type of immune response we want typically happens. And that's why the vast majority, particularly young people, free of risk factors, may not actually progress to severe disease and might have something that's, that's pretty mild. However, when that doesn't work, as is the case in, uh, in the aged immune system as, as listed at the bottom there, some of those initial signals are slower. So you get more viral replication. That antigen presentation is less effective. So we don't get that same kind of amplification of the immune response that we want. And then we get higher cytokine signaling in such a way that it's actually harmful potentially and a cytokine storm can be part of that process. And then we get increased endothelial uh, inflammation and microvascular clotting and coagulopathy and those two things can lead to organ failure and a whole host of other complications. So you can see in the elderly, uh, it can be a really nasty virus due to a few reasons. And so as I mentioned, age is clearly a risk factor and there's so many studies that show this. One show that adults over 65 were 80% of hospitalizations, 23 times the risk of death of people under 65. And there's really two components here I think that are relevant. We talk about immunosenescence, so uh, the immune system not working so well as we age, but also inflammaging. So an increase in chronic systemic inflammation that can really go hand in hand with some of the uh, pathophysiology of this virus. Then there are indirect impacts, of course, uh, immunosenescence impacts people's ability to respond to vaccination, for example. And while not explaining the whole story, obviously the older you are, the more likely you are of having other comorbidities that also increase the risk. But then things like frailty has also been shown to increase the, the risk of poor outcomes with this infection. And obviously if people reside in residential aged care facilities where we're housing 
our most vulnerable, uh, often in a, in, a, in a way that it's hard to control the spread of infections like this, that can be an independent risk factor as well. And if we look at our ABS data again, here you can see some of those comorbidities reported uh, in the COVID-19 deaths. You can see cardiac and respiratory conditions feature, dementia also featured as well, and then cancer and diabetes. Again, the things we know uh, do contribute to risk of poor outcomes with this infection. And the issue in residential aged care facilities is, is so prevalent that there's actually a weekly report that uh, summarises some of these challenges. And I'm quite astonished every time I look at these. This is the most recent one of these to 19th of October 2023. You can see there's 185 active outbreaks in residential aged care facilities. Resident cases, nearly 1,000. Resident deaths, 13. And a number of staff cases as well. And if we look at where these are, I think the most important thing on this slide is if you look at the total outbreaks opened in the previous seven days, nearly 100, whilst we've only closed less than 50. So clearly a trend in the wrong direction. And if we look at those trends graphically, you can see that the national outbreaks in aged care really trended along with case numbers, although a little concerningly a sharp upward rise more recently. And if we look at where those cases are, so this is staff as well as resident cases, you can see they track along fairly similarly, meaning we perhaps need to do more both for staff and residents to try and address this trend. And if we look at mortality, you can see here in purple, the resident deaths, the trajectory is similar, but obviously residents and residential aged care facilities uh, comprise a very significant proportion of the deaths that have been reported. In this group, fortunately, we do have ways of minimising this risk, oral antivirals, and this risk was identified uh, early on such that uh, as far back as February 2022, uh, molnupiravir or Legevrio was actually delivered to residential aged care facilities prioritising uh, outbreak sites, uh, and the National Medical Stockpile deployed nearly 50,000 treatment courses to aged care facilities. And if we look at the prescriptions on that most recent report, molnupiravir over 80,000, nematravir ritonavir nearly 7,000. And of course, vaccination is a big part of this. So as of uh, 18th of October, uh, eight, just over 80,000 or less than 50% of aged care residents have received a booster dose in the last six months. Clearly that's not enough. And only about 750 received a booster dose in the last week. Now, if we just really quickly look at vaccination, very fortunate to have a number of vaccines approved here, 11 if we actually include the most recent updates. And here's our trajectory of vaccination. We did pretty well early, but a pretty flat line recently. And if we look at the current recommendations, so of course at the start of the year we had an expansion of our booster recommendation, and that six month thing really came in, three categories, recommended, consider or not. And at that time, the recommendation was a bivalent booster. But then more recently, as recently as the 1st of September, um, an additional dose perhaps was recommended for people over 75 years. If it had been six months or more since the last dose, consider if in a younger age bracket or severely immunocompromised um, and showing the most benefit if people hadn't been recently infected or people residing in aged care. And at the time, Atagi noted that the XBB 1.5 based vaccines were developed but not yet approved in Australia. And if you look at the doses administered per week, early on we did pretty well in response to booster recommendations. We had an increase in response to cases, but with the most recent booster recommendations, we just haven't seen that same increase. And if we look at some of the figures here, people over 75 years, only 35 
70% have received a 2023 booster dose in the last six months. And given the risk and how important we know vaccination is in addressing that, that's really nowhere near enough. And if we look at that graphically, again, the start of the year, we did pretty well. But most recently, even despite an additional recommendation, we haven't seen that same increase in uptake. And why is that? It's hard to know. I think these are some of the reasons that I think are irrelevant. There's probably a large number of others. But of course, we've had a lot of people infected now. Um, so a lot of people now think the risk is less. Um, we've had a lot of discussion that Omicron is less severe. Um, we've had to withdraw our emergency declarations, etc. And there's been a lot of reassuring messaging around that and a reduced focus on some of the public health messaging, as well as things like fatigue and frustration. So it is a real challenge to get people to take up some of these booster options. And here I've just included some figures on the potential impact of vaccination. Many people now, because of where we are uh, in the pandemic or perhaps post-pandemic, as some describe it, are questioning whether our vaccines actually made a difference. And it's very clear they did and will continue to, provided we can get enough into people's arms. So ongoing challenges, I've shown how much the, the virus is changing. So immune evasion is going to be a big challenge. I've highlighted some of the challenges with getting um, booster uptake to where it needs to be. That's going to be a challenge. Um, and we're going to continue to see these challenges, which is why we need to have a strategy that can be updated in addition with changes with the, the virus and some complementary measures to also support particularly our most vulnerable patients. And at the bottom, I've got a wave uh, with an arrow to a ripple. We're probably not gonna see those big waves that we talked about so much, particularly early on with Omicron, but what we're going to see is the virus isn't going to go away and is perhaps gonna bob up and down based on a large number of factors. So we are fortunate that we have updated vaccines. We, we updated to bivalent vaccines. And here's a picture just showing why we, we liked bivalent vaccines for a period of time. So they boosted the initial immunity that we had to the original vaccines and, and boosted uh, immunity or created immunity to more recent subvariants. But then with ongoing um, evolution of the virus, we've decided to go back to monovalent XBB vaccines. And this is something that's happened quite recently. Um, and in fact, these have been granted full registration uh, just this month by uh, both Moderna and Pfizer. And reassuringly, uh, both seem to provide relatively good protection against EG5 and BA2.86, although that is a bit of a watch this space at the moment. So just to summarise the take on vaccination at the moment, we've of course been incredibly fortunate to have so many good options for, for these vaccines and they have made a, a huge difference. But we do have a large number of challenges with vaccination. The virus is changing, people's perceptions are changing and the amount where we're using these vaccines is unfortunately not where it needs to be. So we do need other strategies to, to help minimise the impact of this virus moving forward, which of course isn't going to go away. And by that I'm talking about the therapies to COVID-19. So we've had two oral antivirals approved by the TGA as far back as January 2022, Nimbatrovir plus Ritonavir, known as Paxlovid, and Molnupiravir, known as Legevrio. And who has been eligible and how these have been supplied has also evolved over time, initially via the National Medicine Stockpile, and initially to quite a narrow spectrum of our COVID patients. We then transitioned to having it funded on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme and eligibility sequentially expanded. So currently, as shown at the bottom there, 70 years or older, regardless of risk or symptoms. So we don't want to wait for these people to get unwell. The idea is we step in before that. 50 years and older with risk factors, 30 years and older if First Nations and with a risk factor, 
18 years and older, if moderate to severe immunocompromised, or previously hospitalised with COVID-19. And here's some of those risk factors. Most of them, I think, are pretty clearly expected. But as I've shown, living in residential aged care is a, is a very significant risk factor and perhaps those who we want to prioritise the most. And in terms of the immunocompromised, a little bit different to the ATAGI table that we used for, for vaccine and booster eligibility, including some things like living with a disability or multiple conditions, as this has been shown to be a, a risk factor for worse disease as well. And here's a table that I've taken from the FDA, just because I think it summarises the, the two very nicely both not recommended in pregnancy or breastfeeding, but you can see nematrovir ritonavir at the top in grey has some additional challenges in terms of severe renal or hepatic impairment and drug-drug interactions. And as, as I've listed there, of course, consult local sources uh, for relevant information. And the evidence for molnupiravir has been particularly challenging, but there's been an update there that I wanted to provide today. So a large phase three study published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed a clear benefit, so much so that the Data Safety Monitoring Committee deemed that uh, recruitment to that trial should stop because the primary outcome had, had largely been met. Uh, and you can see some figures that show just how significant that impact was there. But then we saw the panoramic study. And importantly, like a lot of evidence these days with COVID, a little bit hard to know exactly where that fits in. A younger age group, and as I've shown, age is a risk factor for COVID. So a younger age group, not quite so high a risk. And 94% had three doses of vaccine. So again, something had been done to most of this population to reduce that risk. So the primary outcome actually showed a low rate uh, of hospitalisation or death in both groups. And this led many to suggest that perhaps molnupiravir didn't have a significant effect. But of the other outcomes, and there was a large number, I've listed them there, including clinical and virological, there were some differences between the two groups. But fortunately, we've had some recent evidence, some real world evidence from a population that's very relevant because it's from uh, Victoria and a little more recent. So included some of those Omicron subvariants, a little more closely related to what we're dealing with in terms of BA4, 5. And this was a great study, nearly 40,000 people. And it looked at uh, about half who'd had molnupiravir, um, about 13.5% had nematrovir ritonavir, and about a third who weren't treated. And while it wasn't powered to demonstrate a difference between the two drugs, showed a very significant impact on reduced odds of death um, and reduced odds of hospitalisation, the two main outcomes in the study. And importantly, the magnitude of some of those impacts linked very much to the time of initiation. We know with most antivirals, the quicker they're started, the more likely they are of having an impact. So just some important points on treatment. The eligibility for the oral antivirals has been a bit complicated. It's evolved over time and I've listed that today. It does include a positive test. So you wanna make sure that your patients understand how to get tested and how to quickly get these antivirals because time is really critical. So I think it's actually good to have a plan for both testing and how they might get a prescription for these ahead of time, particularly for our highest risk patients um, and particularly when transmission is a little more prevalent both contraindicated in pregnancy, some challenges interpreting the efficacy, but I think that real world evidence from our own country really helps to solidify the fact that uh, both oral antivirals have a very significant role. Main consideration there uh, is organ dysfunction, drug-drug interactions. So make sure you're aware of those. 
guidelines are likely to become increasingly challenging as we're probably not going to develop those as, as much as we did. The National COVID Evidence Task Force likely to, to not be supported in doing that moving forward. We do have IV treatment for hospitalised patients, but of course we want to intervene before those sorts of things are required as adjunctive therapy like steroids similarly. Antibody therapy was really useful early on, but changes in the virus mean we don't really have that at the moment. Um, and there may be some more antivirals to come, but we're fortunate at the moment that we've got the options that we do. So just in summary, while we've determined that the public health emergency of international concern is over, we're no longer in an emergency phase of management in our country, it's clear the pandemic hasn't gone away and the virus is continuing to evolve. So our response needs to um, update accordingly. And we're going to do that with the XBB vaccines coming soon. But that's not enough in isolation. We also need a number of other strategies. We need to try and minimise transmission in our highest risk patients. And we know there's a number of ways we can do that. But oral antivirals, I think, are really important as well. But we need to make sure we get them in to our patients who are going to benefit the most as quickly as we can so we see the most benefit. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.